question. Do you get angry when you're hungry? There's a term for that. Who knows it? Shout it out. Hangry. Hangry. Yes. Hangry. Now, there's hangry, and there's like hangry. You know what I'm talking about? They're like, and I, I got to tell you, uh, who, who here, I want to know, who here says, is willing to be brave and admit, yeah, when I'm hungry, I change. Anyone out there? <laughs> Jan, I love how quickly and confidently you put that hand up. And I won't tell you what I saw in Jerry's face, but there was something there. <laughs> Let me tell you about my brother, Brett. Brett is the kindest, nicest, most welcoming guy you will ever meet. He will make you feel like family the instant you meet him, unless he's hungry. He is like the Hulk, okay? He turns into a totally different person. And uh, so I often, you know, I'll joke that, yeah, I have two brothers, but I actually have three brothers. I have Adam, Brett, and then Hungry Brett. And you don't want to deal with Hungry Brett. And he knows this. He would raise his hand proud. It's a disaster because some of us, when we're hungry, we just can't hang, all right? We are a different person, and we might act out in anger. And today we're looking at a passage where on first glance, when you first read it, it seems like Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, appears hangry. So we're going to unpack that together, because this is week four of our series, Wait What? And we've been looking at the stranger side of the Bible, trying to make sense of it, trusting it is good and useful for teaching. We first looked at Balaam and his donkey. There's another name for donkey, but we're not using that here. And then there was Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, he became like an animal for seven years. And then last week, we looked at Ahu, the sneaky southpaw. Left-handers, where are you? Uh-huh, there you go. Very good. Just a reminder, this Thursday is an International Left-Handers Day. Love the left-hander in your life. We've been through a lot. This week, we're diving into the New Testament, because uh, we've been a lot in the Old Testament, but there's strange things that happen in the New Testament, too. So let's look at it together. We're in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark 11, verses 12 through 14 today, Mark 11, and we're going to read this passage together. Let's see what it says. This is the word of the Lord. It says, the next day, as uh, they, that is Jesus and his disciples, were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. So then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Wait, what? I had to get one more of those in there. Wait, what? Let's look at everything strange going on in this passage. First, Jesus knows all, right? He's God and human all at once. Like, he knows all. He knew that fig tree probably didn't have fruit on it beforehand, right? It's kind of like when a parent asks their kid, hey, have you cleaned your room? The parent knows there's no chance that room is clean, but they ask it anyway, right? <laughs> they ask it anyway. It's never clean. Jesus didn't find any figs on the fig tree. As the passage reads, it says, it was not the season for figs. Okay, Jesus, be reasonable. It wasn't the season for figs, so what's going on here? I'll unpack that one now for you because uh, it's just it's so troubling to me at first. I'm like, 
how, how is he mad and, and curses this fig tree because of this? Well, it was in full leaf and fig trees, I found out, the, figs, the fruit grows along with the leaves. So while it might not yet be the season for figs, it's getting close to be the season for figs. So it's not unreasonable that there'd be a couple young, uh, uh, smaller figs already starting to grow even before the season. We see that in other things with tomato plants and whatnot. So it's not unreasonable that he could expect a fruit or two to be there. But it wasn't because it wasn't quite the full season for figs yet. But then we have uh, th what I really like is his response, basically saying, if I can't have a fig right now, no one can have a fig right now. And no one will ever have a fig from this tree, okay? And then I like the little line. We, it's a, one of those one lines we just skip over a lot. It basically just, and his disciples heard him say it. That's kind of like, to me, like, I could just see Jesus doing this thing with the fig trees, and his disciples are all back there and just like, oh, dang, Jesus is mad. That poor fig tree. And they're like, ah, did you hear that? I heard that. Yeah, the disciples heard him say it. And so there's a lot of strange things going on here when we read it in this context. Do you guys think Jesus was hangry? Just a quick poll. Does anyone here think he's angry? It kind of seems like it, right? But maybe it's a, a just-filled anger, and we'll, we'll unpack that. See, I thought for years that Jesus was just being kind of ridiculous here. I know you're not allowed to say he was being ridiculous, but that was my perspective when I read it, okay? And I do like that it shows the human side of Jesus. We can relate to him, and he can relate to us, and I find comfort in that. But then I decided to finally investigate it because I was preaching on it. And so here we are. We're going to unpack it together and get at the heart of what is really going on. Anyone else interested in figuring out what's really happening? Yeah? yeah. All right. Cool. If you said no, I guess that would just be a day, right? <laughs> See you next week. All right. So we talked about this throughout this series that when a text is confusing, it's often helpful to uh, kind of find your place within God's story. Look before, look after, and kind of piece it together to see what's happening. So what happens right before this fig tree story is, is Jesus' triumphal entry. This is that moment where he comes, and they're saying, Hosanna, and they're proclaiming him as the Messiah, the one who will save us. That happens. He walks to the temple, and you remember that strange moment. He, walk, he looks around, and then he leaves. Amazing entry, looks around the temple, what's going on, and he leaves. The next day... We get this fig tree account of when this happens. And then right after the fig tree on the temple, he goes on, and it says in Mark 11, 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts. He began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus was really angry at that fig tree. So angry about the fig tree, he went and turned some tables. Except it's not just about the fig tree, is it? But after that temple account, this is what it says, verse 19, when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter had remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you curse has withered. 
So with this expanded view, we learn a few things. There's a triumphal entry. He sees what's going on in the temple. He looks around. He leaves, comes back. There's the fig tree account. There's the temple clearing account. So we return to the temple, and then we return back to the fig tree. So you have this pattern where it's temple, fig tree, temple, fig tree. And that tells us something. In fact, the way the fig tree frames the temple is very telling. You see the fig tree here, it is a living and acted out parable. It's a real life parable that connects to the clearing of the temple. What's going on with the fig tree is what's going on with the temple. You see, have you ever had one of those arguments? It's, it's usually about something that's not really all that important or something that's like um, you're arguing with someone about how to correctly load a dishwasher, okay? And you're just going at it for like an hour and you're just yelling. It's like, the bowls go on the bottom. No, they go on the top. Then finally one of you goes, this isn't really about the dishwasher, is it? No, there's usually something else going on at the heart of it. And that's what's going on here. The fig tree isn't really about the fig tree. See, the temple was the place for worship. But true worship there had disappeared. The people turned it into a mere exchange of business instead of a sacrifice of the heart. And not only that, the little line where it says uh, they allowed everyone to anyone to carry merchandise through the temple, they made it a shortcut for people to carry their goods through the temple so they didn't have to go around. The holiness of the temple was ignored. So they made it a shortcut. So all the substance of worship, gone. And all that was left was a shell, a husk of the real thing, just like the fig tree. It shows promise of fruit, but it produces none. Jesus is showing a righteous anger at a religious life without substance without fruit. What does that mean? What does a religious life without the fruit look like? What does, that, what does that look like today? Well, it means faith without action. It means faith when it's on our own terms and our own idea of what it should be. It means faith only when it is convenient or when it's used as a shortcut for something else, which one must ask, is that even faith anymore? Because fruitless faith it's simply religiosity. It's going through the motions. It's a shell of the vibrant, worship-filled, God-honoring, fruitful lives we are all called to live. And this is the unfortunate truth. This is not rare. We can be so good at faking it, saying the right words, going through the motions, putting on appearances, but deep down, our hearts aren't in it. When our faith has become a series of tasks, instead of a heart-filled, servant-minded, God-obsessed, and others-focused lifestyle, we are in danger of being like the barren fig tree. Jesus says elsewhere, Matthew uh, 7, 19, Matthew 7, 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit, it is cut down and thrown in the fire. 
A tree without fruit is better used to warm me than it is for just standing there without fruit. You see, genuine faith leads to fruit. Fruit, you guys know, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And it's not just the appearance of these things. The fruit is an overflow of what is present in the heart. You can't fake it. People see phony a mile away, right? And fruit is the outward sign of growth. You see, fruit isn't produced in a plant that isn't growing. If a a plant is struggling to survive, it's not going to bear fruit. So fruit is the sign, it's the outward sign of inner growth. And growth, it sometimes takes time until we see that fruit. You see, fig trees, they were a uh, popular source of inexpensive food in Israel. But it required three years for a fig tree from when it was planted until it can bear fruit. Three whole years. Being faithful means sticking with it even when it's hard and even when you don't see the results. Just like a diet. Anyone who's on a diet or is exercising, you're trying to get fit, you go for one run and you get back and you look in the mirror and you go, nothing's changed. I guess I'm done with that. No, you put in the work and it takes a while till you see the fruit. But just because you don't see the fruit yet doesn't mean good things aren't happening. Remain faithful and keep at it. And the fruit will flow out of your hearts. And Jesus also teaches in Matthew 7 that true followers of Christ will be recognized by their fruit. They'll be recognized by their fruit. You know, there, some, there ought to be something different about us Christians. The rest of the world should see us, and instead of calling us hypocrite like they often do, they should see an abundance of grace because we have received grace in abundance. They should, they, we should have overflowing patience, for God has been endlessly patient with us. We should have an unbridled joy for the joy that we have. It's not in things. It's not in our situation. It's in an everlasting, unchanging, eternal God. And when we mess up, we should be the first to offer forgiveness, knowing we are not perfect, but we are loved by a perfect Savior. We should be leading the charge and seeking peace, the peace of the world, because in Christ we have an eternal peace in our souls See, Jesus, he was righteously angry at what was happening in the temple because it diminished worship into a series of tasks and checkboxes, and we know worship is a heartfelt way of life. But how cool is this? Jesus is amazing. I just love Jesus so much for so many reasons, but right here, he becomes angry, but he does not sin. He becomes angry, but he does not sin. Talk about self-control. He doesn't insult. He doesn't go on Facebook and throw shade, right? He doesn't gossip. He doesn't wound. He speaks truth. He speaks scripture. And he calls out what's wrong. But he does not sin. You see, there is space and appropriate times and places to be righteously angry. In fact, Christians, we ought to be angry about sin 
its effects and the injustices in this world, and we need to take a stand against them. But unfortunately, there is this disconnect. And we often will remain passive about the things we really should be angry about, and instead we're really good at getting angry over personal insults and petty irritations. This is a question this passage forces us to consider. Are we directing our anger toward the right things? Are we directing our anger towards injustices, towards sin, its effects? Or are we wasting our anger on petty inconveniences and irritations? And I get it. There's a lot to be irritated about right now, isn't there? There's a lot. And tied with that, we're fatigued. We are all so tired. We are collectively experiencing pandemic fatigue right now. Anyone feeling that? Yeah, look at all those hands. We are over this. Of course, the virus isn't done yet, but we are over this. And it has pushed us and stretched us and challenged us, each and every one of us, again and again and again, with no end in sight. And so, <laughs> there's so much on hold right now. There's so much on hold right now, and everything remains unclear or unknown or uncertain, or pick your favorite word that you are so sick of hearing, right? Usually starts with an un. Just because everything seems to be on a pause right now doesn't mean we should pause our walk with Christ. It doesn't mean we can take a pause on being decent, compassionate, kind, loving human beings. This passage today forces us to look inside and ask, am I that fruitless big tree right now? Am I just going through the motions? Am I just putting on appearances? Am I just putting God on hold? Am I getting caught up in petty distractions and personal preferences and grievances at the expense of my walk with God and as a representative of Christ in this very hurting world? Just because everything's on pause right now doesn't mean we should pause our walk with Christ. In fact, think about this. The space that is created and the absence of normal, what might that look like for us to double down on our faith investment? What type of return on fruitfulness would we experience? I dare say it would be significant. One of the things that has helped me in this season has been to say, okay, I know what stinks right now. I know what's crappy right now. Can I say crappy? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I could use other words. I'm not. There's a lot of things that stink right now. I know those things. You all know them. We have a long list of them. But what is good right now? What opportunities exist right now? For me, I've had an increase of family time 
with that little newborn girl who's crying back there. I've had an increased opportunity for time with God, and I feel closer to him than I have in a long time. I have an increased reliance on him, because it's very clear this is outside of any of our control. And control freaks everywhere have gone through a crisis, because we know that. You're not in control. I dare say, no matter where you are in your faith walk right now, there's an incredible opportunity to draw close to God, to try a new spiritual discipline, to, to reclaim an intimacy with God that has been missing. This time might be one of the greatest opportunities of preparation for fruitfulness we have ever had in our lifetimes. How will you use this time? Time, <laughs> oh, there goes my phone. That's all right. This isn't just the greatest time of potential fruitfulness in our lives. It's also the time in our world where there's the greatest amount of need. So how will we respond? How will we respond? Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Draw close to God. He will draw close to you. And as you draw close and remain in him and invite his spirit to work in your lives, he promises you will be fruitful. You will increase in love. You will increase in joy. You will increase in peace. You will increase in patience. You will increase in kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. All those things that you and I and the world so desperately need right now. The reality is this. When you read about Jesus, his harshest words or for the spiritually entitled. Friends, may we never, ever, ever fall into that place. This is the season to plant. This is the season to grow. The soil is ripe, the spirit is willing, and the world needs your faithfulness now more than ever. So what fruit is present in your life right now? And what fruit is missing? If you go through that list of the fruit of the Spirit, maybe it's like, oh yeah, I'm not all that patient these days. Ask God to do a work on you and in you. Be faithful, you will see results. Whatever it is, because this is the season to plant. This is the season to grow. Draw close to Jesus, remain in him. He will remain in you. And unlike this fig tree, you will be known by the fruit that you exhibit from a faith-filled life. May it be so for all of us. Amen. We pray with me. God, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for its unending truth. We give you thanks that you are so kind and gentle and compassionate, so loving, so faithful, so self-controlled, all those fruits you show in abundance because that is who you are and God is who we desire to be so we pray Lord that today we may draw close to you trusting in your word that as we draw close you are there and present in our lives
we give you thanks that you are kind to us. And so for some of us, we may feel a bit convicted. We know you won't keep us in that place, but you will draw us forward in your grace because your grace is sufficient for all our shortcomings. And so we give you thanks, Lord. We pray that we will be bold today in our faith, that we will step forward in faith because you have always been and you always will be faithful to us. You are so great, God, and so loving. So may we take what you have spoken to us today and may it take root within us as we plant and seek to grow and bear fruit for you and your kingdom, God. May it be so. In Jesus' name, all God's people say, amen.